Support for this podcast is provided by That Cast Creative. Brand your business and connect with your audience by creating a custom podcast. Learn more at thatcast.com. Hey everyone, you're listening to the PDX Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bruden. On today's episode is Sam Pardue, CEO and founder of Indo Window. Enjoyed my conversation with Sam. We talked entrepreneurship, what's going on in the investment community here in Portland, and also a really great initiative that he started called We Hire Refugees. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam. Sam, thanks for being on the podcast. It is great to be here talking to you. Yeah, thanks for hosting me in the Indo Windows uh, HQ here in <laughs> Portland. And we were chatting, you know, when I first got here. How long have you been in this building? We'll get into the story of how you started this, but um, love just to learn about the space a little bit. Well, you can see uh, from the wear on the carpets and the scuff marks <laughs> in the wall, we've been here a few years. We actually moved in uh, into this building back in 2010. This was a startup that went straight from a garage into a factory, 10,000 square feet. Wow. And that was kind of scary because you know my name was on the lease, but uh, here we are. We've now uh, leased the floor beneath us, okay. so we're up to 20,000 square feet. Wow. And looking to expand our capacity further. So let's go back. You took the leap from the garage here, and I know that you have you came out here for a job at Intel. You've had a you started a previous company before this. So can you just tell tell me about the origin story, uh, the brief bio snippet? Uh, yeah, sure. So I moved out to Portland about 21 years ago to work for Intel after getting my MBA at Carnegie Mellon. And I enjoyed that job, but it took me a few years, just a few years to realize I wasn't best suited for the large corporate environment. <laughs> so I hopped out on my own and the first company I started was Lens Baby. I'm the co-founder of Lens Baby along with Craig Strong, who's the inventor of a very interesting series of camera lenses. And I, I served there for about seven years before, uh, along with my friend Mark Pratt, we invented the endo window insert to solve some problems in my own house here in Portland, Oregon, a 1906 Portland Craftsman house. So the so uh, you went from the special effects to it was just like for your own purposes. Well, yeah, you know, uh, for many many years, I've been in a, a panic about climate change mm -hmm. and climate chaos, actually. Way back in my previous career at Los Alamos Lab, I carpooled up to the lab with climate scientists who were using the lab's supercomputers to model climate change. And I had a master's of international affairs, so we'd always talk about climate change. So even while I'm building a special effects camera lens business, I was always kind of bummed out about the amount of energy lost through the single pane mm -hmm. windows in my house. And I started trying to come up with a really elegant solution that would solve the energy loss without messing up those beautiful windows. And I did not want to install external storms on my house. Mm -hmm. So Indo was uh, born to solve a problem in my own house. And it was kind of a fun invention process with my friend Mark, um, kind of unexpected. <laughs> but um, like a lot of inventions, it was scratching at something that was itching. Right. And we took it through a number of iterations before we arrived at the, the solution that we're selling today. So what made you think like, hey, this is, I want to turn this into a real business. Yeah. You know, it, it happened right away when I saw the first prototype. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> and it, that was almost literally the, uh, the, the feeling I had because um, I had put in some magnetic prototypes into my house. Okay. And my friend Mark, who's this really talented 
interesting, imaginative, you know, physical designer was working on a structure in my backyard uh, where, you know, you could have a fire and enjoy the outside in the Portland wintertime. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kept looking at that magnetic solution. He's like, Sam, you've got to let me fix that thing. It's ugly. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. Finally, I decided, okay, okay. All right, let's, let's just give it a shot and see what happens. And so we started working on improving the magnetic solution by looking at refrigerator doors, which have a magnet embedded inside of a flexible extrusion, right? Mm-hmm. And we made the imaginative leap, you know, reaching for a beer one day in the fridge. <laughs> I'm looking at that door and I'm like, that, you know, that seal. And I'm like, if I can convert that from a magnetic system and just create a spring using the extrusion, then we could just kind of press this thing inside the window frame and it would just stay in place hmm. without the magnet. And uh, so I drew something up and I, I sent it over to Mark. And then, I don't know, some weeks later, I get a phone call from him. He's like, Sam, where are you? I said, I'm in my house. He's like, stay right there. I'll be there in five minutes. So sure enough, five minutes later, knock, knock, knock. And I let him into the front hall and he has something hidden underneath a sheet. Okay. He's got a, some, some sort of display and it's hidden underneath a sheet. And so he does the big reveal. He swoops the sheet off and he has created a full functional prototype and a stand-up display window frame. <laughs> and he shows me what he's done. And I'm like, oh, that is beautiful. It's so simple. And I take it out and I put it back in and it just presses into place and it seals up the window frame. Wow. And I'm like, okay, we got to start a company here. And, you know, and I was like, this thing's going to save a ton of energy. Yeah. So that was the original mission. And so did you just start kind of selling it one to one or I know you've raised yeah. some capital. We'll get to that. But yeah, how did that? Yeah. Unfortunately, there was no such simple path. I mean, what yeah. we did do, which I would recommend to any innovator anywhere in any field is you try and put the idea into practice as soon as you can. So we then put prototypes in some of the windows in my house mm-hmm. And I realized Indo was going to be a far more complex enterprise than, a, say, a special effects camera lens business. Yeah. When one day I walked down the stairs after I've woken up you know, in the morning, I walked down the stairs, and there in my dining room, the largest insert that I installed had peeled out of the window frame and was somehow magically cantilevered over my dining room floor in a way that I could never replicate if I tried 10,000 times, right? It's almost like floating, and I'm like, uh-oh, something went wrong, right? And that's when we discovered, you know, how complex Indo actually would be. Such a simple mechanical design Mm -hmm. and simplicity is beauty in design. Mm -hmm. But the complexity is that 95% of window frames are out of square. And we had put a rectangular window insert into an out of square window frame because the house had settled or the original carpentry a hundred years ago was not quite true. And, um, and, and that alone was kind of an intimidating task. But then to top it off, the product experiences thermal contraction and expansion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's air pressure because the outside window is so leaky and our product is so tight that it will capture that air pressure. And so on a cold, windy day, the thing is shrinking. I'm losing compressive force around the edge and it wants to push it out. And then as I think about the business process that's required to produce this product, and I think about measurement error and transcription error and manufacturing error, and I start stacking all these errors on top of each other and say, well, how is it possible to actually make a business to solve this? I was terrified. Mm. I was like, I really didn't think 
I was, I was not convinced it was going to be possible, but I also realized that I couldn't answer that question with what I knew at that moment. I would have to begin a process of learning that continues to this day, 10 years later, you know, nine years later, we're still learning. Actually, it is 10 years later now. Uh, you know, this, um, some, the, the pre-launch phase is what I'm describing that was happening, uh, you know, 10 years ago. So when you got to the point you were looking to raise some capital, we're here in Portland, obviously the startup scene since then has kind of exploded a little bit. How, how was that process? I'm curious for you know, entrepreneurs out there yeah. now looking to raise money. Well, you know, it was very scary for me. One of the miracles of my previous business lens baby is a camera lens business. We started with $5,000. So I, <laughs> based on that experience, yeah. I was like hopelessly naive <laughs> right. about what it would take to start Indo, which also seemed like a really simple business. Mm. In fact, I've had to raise a thousand times as much money to mm. start Indo as I did to start Lens Baby, mm. which fascinates me to this day. Yeah. But, um, you know, I started to demystify the fundraising process. And the best way to do that is to join, I think, Oregon Entrepreneurs Network or join a, a CEO networking group like Starvups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a member of Starvups. I've also been a member of OEN, and I found both experiences to be incredibly valuable. You go watch people pitch their business plan. You go talk to people about the process of raising money. And by doing this, you'll avoid making some of the very serious mistakes that can totally poison the well for a young enterprise mm. if you make the wrong moves raising money right early on. Yeah. You can you can really literally destroy your company before you even take your first step if you set up the wrong financing structure. So, you know, talking to people is really, really so important about the uh, whole entrepreneurial process and kind of, you know, there are tools available to get smart about that. Right. Now we were able to raise, I first self-financed. And again, I had this complacency because of my success with Lens Baby. I didn't realize how much money it would take to create a more complex enterprise uh, this time around. And, uh, you know, Lens Baby was a you know, first generation product, super simple, and we could sell it all by e-commerce. Mm-hmm. So we could have a super streamlined business model. But this company required us to have a much larger factory and everything's made to order mass custom manufacturing. And we need to have a proprietary end-to-end IT system to actually deliver the product at scale. Right. And so all of that, everything I just described is way more expensive to do uh, than, you know, a simple snap together, you know, special effects camera lens. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And getting back to the community part of it now, mm-hmm. and I feel yeah. like we're at such a special place here in Portland because yeah. we were talking before we recorded. It's kind of like an ethos here yes, to help people out, right? And yeah. you, sounds like you mentor uh, entrepreneurs now too, right? I love it. Yeah. And oh, so, you know, I actually didn't complete the thought on raising money. So we actually uh, raised some money on a convertible note. Okay. Uh, Stuart Rosenfeld uh, is still with Endo uh, after all these years. He was one of my very first employees as CFO. Mm. And uh, he uh, has helped us raise money from angels. We've gone through a couple, uh, you know, priced rounds with smaller VCs, uh, boutique VCs. And, you know, Portland, uh, I think, was really uh, friendly for the very first kind of uh, capital we raised. Um, we've also gotten some great support from Portland Seed Fund okay. through the generations. You know, they've they've backed us uh, 
you know, all the time and have been very, very good. So we have found some very strong uh, pockets of support here in the community, but we've also raised a lot of money from Seattle, mm-hmm. California, and even Colorado. Okay. So, yeah. Interesting. So where, where's the business at now? Where, what's next to yeah. share? Oh man, I wish I could share with you guys the future. Uh, cause I am more excited about Endo's future than I have been in many years, Great. which is kind of like, it's kind of astonishing me, uh, the level of excitement I'm feeling right now after nine years in right. the trenches and on this path. But to give you an idea where we're at, we have, um, you know, we have around 45 employees. Uh, you know, some of those are manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, workers uh, who do the assembly here in our Portland, Oregon plant. Uh, we are actively looking at expanding capacity, probably closer to the large concentration of customers we have in the Eastern United States. Okay. Um, so we're kind of, you know, at the, at you know, the, the phase where we're going to be bursting at the seams of this current facility. Uh, we've learned a lot about our product. We've learned a ton about optimizing the current fabulous process of making six foot by four foot parallelograms and trapezoids, <laughs> shipping them all over the United States and having them fit precisely almost every single time, which mm. is something we're really kind of proud of. But yeah. we're also kind of really looking uh, at how we can disrupt our own business you know how can we kind of break apart and really rethink what we've done uh so far and uh it's led us to a really exciting place and so we're we're very excited about the future but i can't answer sure well i love that thinking of disrupt your own business right is that like not to say you're doing this but you know how do i put myself out of business before someone else does a little bit right right? yeah and so i am that mindset it's it's cool to hear yeah well it takes me for me it, it kind of uh my mission orientation around indo is one of the things that makes me want to disrupt this business and uh, you know we actually didn't describe what an indo insert is so maybe i should yeah, just take that moment yeah. right now so an indo window insert uh is uh, an energy efficiency comfort uh device that also provides a tremendous amount of quiet for live spaces and workspaces. It's a window insert that presses inside an existing window frame with no mounting bracket. Uh, it's got a very simple mechanical design, just a sheet of acrylic glazing edged with our uh, patented compression tube. But the key to the delivery of the product is a laser measurement step where we laser measure the inside of the window, get the exact shape that we make the window insert that exact shape, but a little bit bigger. Mm. So when you push it in, the tubing compresses evenly all the way around the edge. That creates the great seal. That creates the very, you know, very nice aesthetics. At a trade show, I'm happy to tell customers that we've sold and had our product installed in hundreds and hundreds of homes around the United States that are worth more than a million dollars. Yeah. Because we have a beautiful product and it satisfies very discriminating tastes. However, as someone who started this company because I was in a panic about climate change, I'd like to make it more available to more people. Mm. And so we're working on how can we do that? And that's causing us to rethink some of the fundamental assumptions of our business. And um, it's actually, you know, as we as we go down this path, it's really reinvigorated me because uh, we see this very exciting future ahead. Yeah, sounds like a lot of opportunity. So we're going back to you mentioned some of your employees here. I think it was maybe a few weeks ago mm-hmm. that there was an interview with you, article with you about an initiative here or is more of a program. You know, we, we hire refugees, right? Yes. So can you talk about that? 
Yes, uh, We Hire Refugees was begun in 2016 internally here at Indo because we were looking at the presidential campaign and the rhetoric around immigrants and refugees clashed really terribly with our direct experience of our wonderful colleagues who, uh, you know, yeah, the, we do have some employees. At that time, we had four employees who were refugees. Mm. They were wonderful people. They were wonderful members of our community. I would love to have them as neighbors, mm-hmm. wonderful uh, members of our country. And so the political rhetoric just didn't make any sense. And so we thought there was an opportunity for business to speak up about the positive role that refugees have in companies and communities and in our country. And so we kind of started it, uh, started working on it, started concepting it. And then uh, we really leapt into action when Trump did his first uh, ban of immigrants and, and people just coming to the country from some Muslim countries. And so we then really began an active process of outreach. We reached out to the refugee organizations around the United States at the national level and at the local level. And we got a lot of encouragement. And I think that's, you know, anytime you're being entrepreneurial, even in the nonprofit space, it's really important to do that kind of competitive mapping or kind of what's the market opportunity map look like. But we we realized there really was a need for a business voice in support of refugees that was welcomed by the refugee community. And so we launched WeHireRefugees.org, a very straightforward name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that website was launched simply as a declaration where businesses could state they welcome, they would be willing to hire uh, refugees. And not that, they, you know, you don't have to employ refugees to, um, to sign up. Mm-hmm. But uh, so we, we got a number of companies to sign up. Uh, and uh, then the, the issue has percolated along. Yeah. Uh, under-resourced, perennially under-resourced, because we're a startup and we've got our hands full just mm-hmm. just growing into. Uh, but we found that uh, you know even with no effort, companies kept signing up every month. And uh, we then got a, a very interesting phone call this spring from Catholic Charities here in Oregon okay. because there was some legislation uh, that they needed, they were pursuing to help fund uh, refugee organizations in Oregon, specifically the resettlement agencies that help refugees, you know, establish themselves in, in our country, uh, in our state. And uh, this legislation was in response to a radical decline in federal funds available to support these organizations. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that radical decline is that the funding is is tied to the number of refugees who get resettled. And that number has dropped 75% in the past couple of years. And so what's happening across the country is resettlement organizations are going extinct. They're being driven out of existence by this radical shift in policy. And so fundamental capacity is being lost uh, from our country. And this legislation was essentially a financial lifeline to keep the resettlement uh, system intact here in the state of Oregon. Okay. And so the call came to us and we were of course um, delighted to try and help. And, and so we jumped in and we 
started contacting uh, member organizations based in Oregon to see if they would sign a letter and support the legislation. And I was happy to see that a, a good number of We Hire Refugees companies signed that letter in support. Great. We were happy to go down to the legislature to lobby and meet with legislators and explain from a business point of view uh, why we thought refugees were really uh, valuable uh, people. Uh, so uh, it was incredibly gratifying to see this legislation pass mm -hmm. and to pass with overwhelming bipartisan support, mm -hmm. which in this day and age um, <laughs> is so needed. I mean, it's such an amazing yeah. story that that something that has been kind of the lightning rod issue in the political divide chasm in our country right now, somehow we found a way to cross that chasm here in Oregon. And I think the business voice was an important part of that dialogue. So for this initiative, what do you see? Um, what do you see? I know as it started here mm -hmm. kind of for you first and it's, it's mm -hmm. grown is going to be a separate kind of organization or. Yes. Yeah. So this, you know, House Bill 2508, which led to the successful legislation signed by the governor of Oregon uh, and now in law, uh, has inspired us to want to spin off We Hire Refugees into its own nonprofit organization. And so some of uh, the, you know, some of the people who helped me start this, uh, Carrie Strzok is is now serving as the executive director of We Hire Refugees okay. on a volunteer basis. And we are in active discussions with uh, funders and with nonprofit organizations to see about the most efficient way we can set this up as an independent organization with some very specific goals. Mm. And again, you know, I'm thinking as an entrepreneur, you know, we want We Hire Refugees to be very narrowly focused on representing the business voice uh, on behalf of the refugee community uh, but really to be in, in service of some specific ends that and be non-duplicative of the nonprofit organizations that already exist. Mm -hmm. Because clearly the whole system is under stress and we don't want to draw any resources away from these organizations. So um, what we're doing is uh, we're focused on helping other state initiatives that are similar to what just passed uh, here in Oregon. And Catholic Charities... Uh, actually is a national organization. We partnered with the, the Oregon uh, affiliate of Catholic Charities, in Catholic, in, which actually was the organization that spearheaded this legislation. Okay. Uh, we were just supporting them and their fine work. Mm -hmm. uh, I should be very clear about that. But Catholic Charities on a national basis is interested now in, in supporting similar legislation in other states. Okay. So We Hire Refugees will have a very specific mandate to recruit businesses in states where there are similar uh, legislative efforts and then, um, you know, connect those businesses with uh, the legislative efforts being done by the local nonprofits. So, um, you know, that seems like a very finite, well-defined mission. And so, you know, just like, uh, you know, again, as an entrepreneur, we're, we're thinking very much in terms of a pilot stage yeah. with minimal funding, but to test the ideas uh, with funders and, you know, to match it up with opportunities uh, out there and make sure that there's a real need. Uh, you know, it's really important to do that. Um, again, the philosophy of putting your ideas into practice, getting feedback from the world as quickly as possible mm -hmm. and course correcting as necessary. So we think we can do this with uh, modest uh, financial uh, assistance mm -hmm. to get it going. In fact, 
you know, we already have had discussions with Catholic Charities, and we already know the desire to partner with We Are High Refugees on a national basis, and we've already talked to a nonprofit, uh, a group in Georgia that mm. wants to pursue similar legislation in Georgia. Great. And that was an interesting conversation. Um, you know, they at first thought it would be impossible, mm. but then they saw that we passed this legislation in Oregon with nearly unanimous support. So maybe it will be possible. And uh, I think the Secretary of State in Georgia, who is a Republican, uh, employs about 60 refugees in his business. Mm. So let's hope yeah. sanity prevails there. Well, kudos to you. And I was so glad to you know read that article a couple of weeks ago. And um, well, a couple more questions. I mean, one more question before we leave is I always like to ask, you've been doing business here in Portland for a while. You've seen the growth of the city in terms of businesses coming here. Um, what do you f- see for the future of business here? you know, in the Portland area. Pros and cons too. Of what's pros and cons. On. Well, there's so many pros. Um, you know, obviously the traffic is getting worse, <laughs> but, uh, you know, uh, I think, I think Portland is going to absolutely thrive. Um, what we're seeing with the creative economy is, and especially the digital creative economy is there's huge benefits to having distributed workforces and, and, and being in for large companies like Google and Microsoft and Amazon to have strong presences in places like Portland where people love to live. And, uh, Looking at the macro trends there, I think that that trend is only going to strengthen. It's not going to diminish. I think creativity is an amazing force in in entrepreneurship and innovation. I think Portland has a lot of facets that is very appealing to creative people still. Mm-hmm. I worry that Portland may be losing its iconoclastic highly experimental kind of lifestyle oriented culture. And that experimentation uh, could, could, was one of the things that I think made Portland such a creative place and such a, a, you know, wonderful place for somebody like me to live. You know, I moved out here to work for Intel, but my co-inventor of the Endo mm-hmm. was one of those iconoclastic old Portland people who would have been very, uh, you know, comfortable in Portland 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? But, you know, I probably wouldn't have met Mark today, Mm. right? Because of the demographics and the shifting landscape where it's so much less uh, possible. You know, Craig Strong with his crazy Camerlin's invention, he was another member of the creative class, Mm. that kind of mythical creative class. Mm. You know what? I have encountered a Craig Strong in the Portland of today, I'm not sure. And so, you know, I know my own personal path here in Portland has been very influenced by some very iconic, creative Portland people that I met. And that led to inventions. But I also know that Portland, if it does have something very special, needs to find out how to be ambitious in bringing that voice to the world. As an environmentalist, as someone who's terrified about the prospect of climate change after studying this issue for 30 years... Mm -hmm. um, you know, we cannot imagine that we live on an island here. Mm-hmm. And I call it the Portland paradox. Can we be ambitious? Can we take our ideas and make them big while remaining kind of a quirky, interesting place to live? I guess we're going to have to find out. I think so. Well, we'll find out. I'm bullish on it. All right. Um, Sam, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It has been a great pleasure. Thanks for coming by. Mm-hmm.
Thanks so much for listening to the show. I'm Dan Bruden, and you've been listening to the PDX Executive Podcast. Original music was composed for this episode by Levi Downey. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, 